Hello, and welcome to Nobel S. Oblige, the podcast where we're ranking all of the Nobel laureates from 1901 until we run out of people. I'm Quinn. I'm Maggie. And today we're covering the 2022 Nobel laureates in physics. So, this year's physics laureates are Alain Aspect, John F. Clauser, and Anton Zellinger for experiments with entangled photons, establishing the violation of Bell inequalities, and pioneering quantum information sciences. So we're going to break down that attribution uh, here into a couple of parts. So first thing is, what is quantum entanglement? So that sounds very complicated. It's actually a fairly simple idea, which is that so quantum entanglement is an effect of quantum mechanics, where two or more particles are connected to each other in such a way that whatever happens to one particle determines what happens to the other. And this happens regardless of how far apart those particles are. So I'm assuming that is different than just cause and effect, because something happening to one particle that affects something happening to another particle, like if they're next to each other, that's just like they how like they bump into each other and like that's going to affect the other one i'm assuming this is different and that's why it's spooky right so you have exactly hit on the thing that makes quantum entanglement weird which is that you know so we're used to objects that hit each other or interact in some way like for, for example two magnets that interact through the magnetic force even though they're not physically touching each other things like that right the thing that's weird about quantum entanglement is that at least as far as we know it acts over any distance scale without any obvious interaction between the two particles. So there have been experiments where you have, for example, two electrons on opposite sides of the globe. And whatever measurement you do to one electron, they're they're entangled with each other. So whatever happens to one electron affects what happens to the other electron, even though they're separated so much that you would expect them not really to be able to interact with each other. Yeah, that... That is, that is spooky. I'm 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 gonna agree with Einstein on this one. Yeah, that is what Einstein referred to as spooky action as a dis- at a distance. So that's what quantum entanglement is. Pretty simple, you know, as far as quantum mechanics goes. Yeah. I was gonna say. <laughs> um, now the other part of this is uh, Bell inequalities. So what are those? So quantum mechanics is a branch of physics that deals with very very small things, right? Atoms, subatomic particles, etc. Quantum mechanics is inherently probabilistic, meaning that it is, we can never know for certainty what something is going to be until we measure it. In classical physics, which is Newton's laws, that kind of stuff, classical physics is deterministic, which means that if you know all of the information about a system at one point in time, you can predict everything that's going to happen past, present, and future. That sounds exhausting. Yeah. I mean, in practice, you can't actually do that, but... In principle, if you had all of the information about the universe at a given point in time, you would be able to completely predict the future and know everything that happened in the past, according to classical physics. So that's classical uh, physics. Quantum mechanics is probabilistic, which means that all we can know before we make a measurement is the probability that something will be in a certain state. Now, this did not sit very well with a lot of physicists when quantum mechanics was first being developed and even up to the 50s and 60s, including Einstein. He did not like this 
spooky action and a distance and many other features of quantum mechanics. So one solution to this problem was what was called the hidden variable theory, which basically said that there are actually properties of a quantum mechanical system that absolutely determine the state of that system. But these are properties that we can't directly observe. And so to us, it looks like everything is probabilistic. It was a debate, right? So they didn't know which one was true. So in the 1960s, a physicist named John Stuart Bell came up with a series of mathematical inequalities that basically state if there are hidden variables in reality, then certain measurements can never be higher than a certain value. And on the other hand, quantum mechanics predicted that these values must be higher than this value. So the first part, certain values can't be higher than a certain amount. That's just like probability has to add up to one. No. So so basically what he did was he took he took things that you can measure in a lab and he calculated what the expected value should be if there are hidden variables in these systems in real in reality. Mm hmm. It doesn't matter what those hidden variables are, according to these inequalities, if that type of theory is the true theory of reality, then this measurement should never be above some number. Okay. And then when you do the same calculations in quantum mechanics, it predicts a number greater than that. So basically what it's saying is if you do a measurement and that measurement is higher than this number then there can't be any hidden variables. It has to be, okay. like quantum mechanics has to be probabilistic. Ba basically, it set up a, a system by, uh, it set up a measurement that someone could go do an experiment and take the measurement and determine whether or not there are actually these hidden variables. I guess the thing I'm stuck on is that if the variable is hidden and you don't know what it is, how do you account for it in an equation? So... This gets into some nitty gritty details, but basically there are mathematical structures that are how you calculate things in quantum mechanics. We call them wave functions. And basically the way that those things combine when you like, okay, so if you have a bunch of quantum mechanical systems, each one, each system has its own wave function. So we're talked about, we talked about quantum entanglement, right? So quantum entanglement essentially is saying that there are two systems that have wave functions that are related to each other and the way that they're related to each other is different if there are hidden variables versus if there is probabilistic quantum mechanics and so the difference between those two things is what leads to the bell inequalities so even though you don't know the nature of those hidden variables you can say that there is a maximum value that those hidden variables can predict okay so basically, it's like you have two ways that the particles could be related, right? And one looks like a duck and the other one looks like a elephant. And if it looks too much like an elephant, it simply cannot be the way that they're related that looks like a duck. That's kind of a roundabout way of saying it. But yeah, I think that would be accurate. Okay, yeah. cool. I needed to take some of the physics terms out for my brain to accept. Yeah, 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 that's fair. That's fair. I've caught up now. Yes. So he writes down these, they're called the Bell inequalities, right? The issue is that the way that Bell formulated them, in their original form, these inequalities weren't quite one-to-one -one matching with what you can do in an experiment. So 
1969, John Clauser, uh, along with Michael Horn, Abner Shimony, and Richard Holt, modified these Bell inequalities in a way that can be measured in an experiment. So they basically rearranged some things, formulated a little bit differently so that it's a one-to-one comparison with an experiment. And then Clauser went on to work with a PhD student at the time named Stuart Freeman uh, to test these. And they found that the measurement agreed with the quantum prediction, that the, the measurement that they took was greater than the value that the Bell inequalities said could be the maximum for the hidden variables, showing that there are no hidden variables, that the probabilistic formulation of quantum mechanics is correct. So they they redid the math and then they were able to test it and go, this is definitely absolutely an elephant and not a duck. Right. So uh, there's one important caveat to this, which is that the Bell inequalities, when you, so anytime you do a theoretical calculation, you have to make assumptions in order to simplify it enough to actually do the calculation, right? So mm-hmm. one of the assumptions of the Bell inequalities is that the two measurements are independent of each other so you know if you have two entangled particles because remember we're all we're talking about quantum entanglement here so if you have two particles that are entangled you do a measurement of each one the bell inequalities assume that the measurements of those two particles are independent which is a condition that we call locality there was worries that clauser's experiment that the that the two measurements could be unintentionally correlated with each other because the, uh, the detectors were not super far away from each other. So these are photons that are that they're measuring here. So photons are particles of light. So they travel at the speed of light, which is very, very fast. There's not that much of a separation between them. So it's a very short amount of time between these two. It's potentially, you could have some sort of unintentional correlation in the measurements, right? So like, because it's, if it's a, like, a, I know it's not as simple as just like a light source pointing at a thing, but like, if like, one of the photons from one light source went like super wide and like into the other detector, they were worried that that was like somehow related or something. It was more that, because um, the, remember, the whole thing about quantum entanglement is that whatever happens to one particle affects the other one, right? There are certain things you can imagine happening from a physics perspective that could look like these two particles are entangled with each other, but are actually just an artifact of something else going on. So in um, 1881 and 1882, Alan Aspect, along with Philippe Grazier, Gerard Roger, and Jean Dalliard, redesigned the experiment to make sure that there's no correlation happening. What they did was they set the detector's Uh, So there's certain settings on the detector that you can play with to make different measurements. And so they designed something that would randomly change the settings on those detectors in between the time that the photon left the source and then hit the detector, which is very, very fast. You're saying they they designed something that like actually literally changed faster than the speed of light? No, the distance from the source to the detector in terms of the speed of light it took about 20 nanoseconds to move from there. So something that could mm-hmm. that could change in faster than 20 nanoseconds. And so by doing this, they could ensure that there was no correlation happening because they were literally doing a different measurement than was set up when the light left the source. 
And so this showed uh, definitively that the Bell inequalities uh, were violated and therefore that the hidden uh, variables were not there. It closed that loophole that was there before. Now, there was a few little details here and there that had to be cleaned up, which was done by Anton Zeilinger sometime later, but that's not why he is winning his no the Nobel Prize. He won his Nobel Prize for basically taking these principles and pioneering a bunch of different ways to actually use them. So we're going to talk about something called quantum teleportation. Are you are you telling me that the the beam me up Scotty thing from Star Trek could be real? I don't want to say yes, because that would be irresponsible of me as a physicist. But uh, well, let's just let's just get into it. One of the consequences of all these things that we've been talking about so far is something called the no cloning theorem. Basically, what it says is that there is no process by which you can copy a quantum state, so a particle with a bunch of properties, for example. So we're talking about photons here. So if you have a photon that has a bunch of different properties, you can't take that photon and create a copy of it without destroying the original. So teleportation could not exist. Like, this is kind of a tangent. You know those things about how, like, teleportation could only exist if you, like, cloned the person and then destroyed their original body and are it like then you get into the whole ship of theseus thing where is that it, basically they proved that that was how it would have to work with that yeah i don't want to speculate on human teleportation because again that would be irresponsible of me as a physicist and also <laughs> like we can like do this with like a couple of particles at a time basically Fair at enough. this point I, I will not hold you to whether or not human teleportation is possible right now on this podcast. I, however, as a sci-fi nerd who is not a physicist and can be as irresponsible as I want, will say I think it'd be really cool if it works. Yeah. So you can't clone a quantum state, but you can teleport it, which, you know, basically is you create a copy of it some distance away and then destroy the original. And this was done for the first time in 1997 by two groups one of which was led by Anton Zeilinger, who is one of the laureates this year, and another one uh, led by Francesco De Martini. And it basically, the, the, the method of how you do this is pretty complicated and outside of the scope of this podcast. But like, essentially, the idea is that you have two entangled particles in two different locations, and then you coordinate the measurements of those two particles, which creates the whatever quantum state you started with, so like we have two particles A and B, right? You can do some measurements to A and then you do a complementary set of measurements to B and then that creates the same quantum state in particle B as you had in particle A, but now particle A is in some other different state. When we say destroy a quantum state, by the way, it doesn't mean that the particle is like eradicated. It just means that, that is it's... what I was picturing in my head. I was like, OK, so you measure a and that makes it pick a spot that the thing is in. If you pick one, the wave function collapses and then you do something else to B, and then a disappears. That's what I was thought I thought was happening. When we say destroy the quantum state, all that that means is that particle A was in some state. We transfer that state to particle B and now particle A is in some different state. It changes the what we call quantum numbers. We have a set of things that define what their properties are. We call those quantum numbers. Basically just a way of keeping track of all the different things that this particle can can be. So a state is a particular set of quantum numbers. 
So by destroying that state, basically what it means is you have now given it a different set of quantum numbers. Okay. So quantum teleportation, that's one of the things that he pioneered. But uh, Zellinger and his group were also the first to demonstrate something called entanglement swapping, which is a similar kind of related process in which you have two particles that initially or that have previously had not interacted with each other. And through this process, you can cause them to become entangled. So the first, the quantum teleportation was like, they're already entangled and you make them change what state they're in. And then this is, they are not entangled. And then you make them be in the same state and also related. Not in the same state, but they will be entangled with each other. So they, they will be in related states. So so like if A is up and then B has to be down and then if A switches, then they have to, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There were a lot of hand motions that went with this that unfortunately the podcast listeners will not see and will probably <laughs> still be confused because they could not see them. Now, this work, all of this that we've been talking about has been uh, fundamental in the development of quantum information technology. So that's quantum computing, quantum networks, all these types of things that you, buzzwords you may have heard before. So, for example, uh, entangled photons are integral in the operation of quantum communication satellites, which basically entanglement like starts to break down the more that these particles interact with other things. So, you know, if it's moving through air, for example, it uh, becomes very difficult to keep things entangled. So they have these satellites in space. Space is a vacuum, makes it easier to keep entanglement going. And uh, this was done by a group uh, called Pan et al. Uh, Pan is a Chinese physicist. I think the group is pretty international uh, in 2016. Uh, they also worked in conjunction with Zeilinger um, and his group. There's also a device called a quantum repeater, which uses this entanglement swapping to basically extend the range over which quantum signals can be sent. So, you know, you send a quantum signal, it hits the repeater, you use this entanglement swapping to basically create a new pair of entangled particles that then can travel to the next repeater, so on and so forth. Oh, okay. And yeah, so so this is all of this, all of these things are things that Zeilinger has been uh, involved in. And so he's you know his his part portion of the Nobel Prize is in recognition of taking these quant these uh, quantum entanglement properties and turning them into things that can actually be used to create new technologies and all this kind of stuff. Nice. Yeah. Now, real quick, uh, things that he hasn't been involved in but are also important. These entanglement things are very important for condensed matter physics, uh, which is basically the physics of conglomerate matter, uh, basically like metals and fluids and things like that but uh it could help actually define rigorously the differences between different phases of matter and uh there's also i mentioned quantum computing this all has um implications for quantum cryptography basically using quantum entanglement to secure digital information and things like that uh essentially like uh the way the, the way quantum cryptography like the principle of it at least is that you know, you have two entangled states. Anything you do to one state messes with the other one, right? Mm -hmm. So someone, you can imagine if, for example, you're trying to send an email, you know, it originates from your computer and ends up at another computer. So if somebody tries to interfere with it in the process, 
then that changes the quantum state. Mm -hmm. And when it arrives at the next computer, that computer can then recognize that this is in a different state that is not the one from before, because basically your computer and that computer have entangled Mm -hmm. things. And so that computer can, you know, say, oh, this is not, uh, you know, this key doesn't match the key that should have come from my entanglement partner. Okay. Yeah, something like that. But yeah, so that was a uh, less than brief description of this year's Physics Nobel Prize. I the all of these these people are very smart. I I'm gonna be honest. I still don't really know what's happening, but it quantum states are cool and also infuriating. Uh, and I am still in agreement with Albert Einstein. This is very spooky. You have any recommendations today? I went first yesterday. You 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 have to go first. I'm gonna recommend Crash Course Physics by the Vlogbrothers <laughs> in preparation for the next like five years of this podcast. Maybe maybe I should take a look at that. <laughs> I'm gonna recommend preparing for the winter more specifically uh if you are a college student or a a recently moved out young adult or like like an older adult who just like packed away all their winter coats obtain a winter coat if you're in somewhere where it gets cold because it's october and it will get cold before you think this is inspired by a conversation with a relative who had to order a coat because they left all of their coats at home before going to college stay warm stay toasty my friends That's it for us today. Join us tomorrow when we cover the new chemistry prize. But that's it. Uh, (laughs) Goodbye. Bye. I'll somehow cut all of this together.